Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. I am so excited to have Stephanie with me today. She's with Sophia Financial. She's the founder and she's a CFP. Now, I got to let you on a little secret. She just had me on her podcast and we had so much fun. So we're primed for me to now be in the other seat and interview her about financial planning. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. All right. So can you tell everyone that's listening a little bit about yourself, about your planning firm? Yeah, sure. So I have to adjust. In in a month or so, it'll be 25 years that I have been a financial advisor. I got used to saying 24 finally, and now I have to say 25. <laughs> so my firm, Sophia Financial, is really dedicated to working with women around money. And we can talk a little bit about how I kind of came to that, um, the conclusion that that was needed. But we work with women, you know, about half our clients are women on their own, and half our clients are part of couples. Uh-huh. And really, I would say we kind of specialize in women kind of in the Gen X and baby boomer phase, you know, you know, looking towards whatever retirement, quote unquote, might mean to them with some kind of sense of trepidation, like, oh, shoot, I, I haven't been paying as much attention to this stuff as I should. I would say a lot of my clients tend to be kind of in the helping professions in that space. And they really wish they didn't have to worry about all this money and investment stuff. Like, <laughs> ugh. Um, so it's, it's very much about having a holistic conversation about their whole lives, what they're trying to create, where their worries are, their values, and then lining the money stuff up to support that. Wow. I'm already imagining just feeling more at ease in your hands. Like if I'm showing up <laughs> and I'm like in that pre-retirement phase, whether it's still maybe 20 years out or five years out. And you said you really like working with helping people that are in the helping professions. What does that, what does that mean? What does that typically look like? What are some common professions of your clients? It's so interesting. You know, as, as a former financial planner, you probably remember one of those exercises people want you to do is, you know, what's your niche and what, what kind of specialty (laughs) do you have? And, and as I look at the clients, you know, and, Really, it's, you know, I put myself out there and the people kind of who are drawn to my approach, I think, tend to in some way be, you know, one of the common denominators is that a lot of my clients are into yoga. So I have a a divorce lawyer who used to own a yoga studio. Uh I have a scientist, a PhD scientist, but she teaches yoga to her colleagues at lunchtime. Uh And then, you know, just kind of more people who are, you know, into that, I would say that holistic way of looking at things and maybe, you know, kind of um, wanting to do good for the world and themselves. And, and yeah, it's kind of more, I guess, a worldview than a particular um, profession. I like that. That is really more a worldview. And, and the yoga piece. Now, I mentioned we, you just interviewed me for your podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and just bring that up. And I love yep. that you brought forward. Maybe it's time for Shavasana after this podcast interview. (laughs) And maybe we'll feel the same way after this one. But it is because listening and thinking about our finances is a major mental activity. And we go through a lot of different mental positions, if you will. 
right? We have you're as a financial planner trying to hold people in warrior pose and downward dog. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't know. I'm not super cool on all the yoga language. I've done a little bit of yoga, but <laughs> um, cat cows, you know, like so. Yep. If we play with that because I think people in my audience also many of them will be familiar with yoga. Many of them will actively be practicing and some might be even curious because yoga yeah. has its own philosophy behind it it does can, can you share in your own words what what's the philosophy behind yoga and how does that then translate to people's financial life what do you see as the intersection there Oh, you know, there are, there are so many connections. Years ago at my little neighborhood yoga studio, I took a little class on yoga philosophy. And now you're making me wish I had my notes in front of me. But, and this is kind of how I go through life. I'm like, oh, there's so many parallels with financial planning. Uh Um, you know, part of it, I believe is acknowledging that this stuff is stressful and that it is emotional, right? Like I think Yoga acknowledges, right? Like you kind of have to show up with wherever you are that day, right? The key is to keep showing up on your mat. And if you're feeling strong that day or if you're feeling weak that day or if you just really don't want to be there or, you know, there's much more going on, that's okay, right? Like bring it all to the mat with you. And I think I work very hard to create a safe space for my clients where we're going to talk about whatever is going on in your life. Like it's not just... Money. Money touches all the most intimate parts of our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, our feelings of self-worth and our relationships, as you know so yeah. well. And, you know, our our security, right? Everything. So we have to talk about all that stuff if we're going to talk about money. A few weeks ago, I called a client and she told me she had been stressed for like a month uh-huh. about money. I was like, well, oh, why haven't you... <laughs> called me. And it wasn't directly a money stress. It was something, you know, something in the house that needed fixing and she was worried about the cost of it. Oh, I didn't, I didn't really want to bother you with it. No, that is exactly the things you're supposed to bother me with. Because especially my clients Mm. who are women on their own, they have no one to talk to about this stuff because money's still impolite to talk about or you feel like you're going to be judged in some way. So, it's very stressful and you can, you know, cycle around yourself worrying about this stuff. So I think that's a big part of my role is to be that person to talk to about whatever, especially around the decision-making stuff that, that can feel so isolating. I'm really glad that you bring that up and that parallel. And I think I'm just going to say it is like come into the money mat, like come as yeah. you are in whatever state you're yeah. in. We know both you and I fully accept that you're going to be in different mental states about money and that that's expected and normal and okay. And let's yes. look at that. And it's okay because I think that's at least my sense on yoga is show up as you are. And we're going to go through this sequence of movements to help you mm-hmm. kind of process and just become back in fully into your body. And yes. that that really embodied state is where we become most effective we may not mm-hmm. start there, but we can always kind of come home to ourselves through different yoga poses and sequences. And so money conversations can, by a great facilitator, someone like yourself, I imagine you see people really go into a different state of mind after you've worked with them and asked them different questions. I love that parallel, Ed, and it brings to mind 
a time a couple years ago, back when I could actually go visit clients in their homes, you know, uh-huh. pre-COVID, um, I was sitting at my client's kitchen table, and we I think I was there for almost two hours. And at the end, she said, oh, my gosh, this has been so stressful. And I thought, we talked about finances for 20 minutes. Uh-huh. And then we talked about her trip to Europe and her visiting her sons and her, you know, her hobbies and her dogs. Like, we talked about all the other stuff. Uh-huh. But... This emotion that she felt and the stress she felt from having to get into that kind of mind space to talk about the money, uh-huh. because it is such a stressor for her, right. you know, is kind of still what what dominated. So I think that is a good point about going through the motions and, and as you said, like normalizing it. Like, yes, it's normal to feel stress around money. I think that's one of the things that the industry the financial services industry really misses and gets wrong hmm. is is the emotional piece of money. So many women I talk to feel shame that they're feeling shame around money, right? It's kind of that <laughs> you're feeling shame about your shame. Oh, yeah. Think just to compound it, right? Yeah. Like, oh, it's supposed to just be all cut and dried and spreadsheets and calculators and there's not supposed to be any. Well, that's crazy. So, yeah, let's normalize the fact that money is emotional, all the different emotions. And I think that's a piece of getting people to a better place. It's a huge piece of getting people to a better place, right? Is, I mean, from a mental health perspective, emotional regulation and awareness is a big part of the work. A lot of times with clients is helping them reconnect with their emotional world. And it's not to say that, I think some people hear this and think, oh, well, we're going to give up all practical, logical decision-making. We're going to stop thinking about compound interest or setting a budget. No. No. But we're going to process the emotions that come up around that, and we're going to make sure that what we're setting aside in retirement accounts or budgeting feels good and comfortable for you. That if you have to tune out from how it feels, then it probably is not a good fit yet. Yeah, and I think that that's why you and I connect so well, right? Because I heard years ago that many doctors get super frustrated, right? They come up with this health plan for their clients and there's exercise and di- diet change and medication. And then they get frustrated that their their patients don't follow through. And financial planners do the same thing. They come up with this big fancy financial plan, 75 pages in the bound book and exactly what they need to right. do. And they get frustrated that their clients don't do it. Yes. Which is why my first couple meetings with people, we don't talk about numbers. I have no idea how much they make or how much they have invested. We're talking about all the soft stuff. And one of the reasons is to try to surface ahead of time what might come up. Well, first of all, to design a plan that's actually going to fit, not just the finances, but the person and their patterns and their feelings, but also to think about ahead of time what roadblocks might come up. If we say, hey, you're going to max out your 401k and you're also going to try to save $500 extra per Mm -hmm. month all right, what things might come up that would get in the way? And let's think about ahead of time how to deal with that, how to come up with a strategy that's going to work for you and how to not beat yourself up if things come up and you know have plan A, B, C, D, and E for how to deal with it. There's always more options than it meets the eye. Is that what you're saying? For sure. And I think it's super helpful if you've thought about them ahead of time. Yeah. Right? Because sometimes you think, well, it's either... I saved the $500 a month that Stephanie told me to, or I'll be in the poorhouse. No. <laughs> That's right. really valuable. I'm laughing. Uh, but that <laughs> is really the, the thought process for a lot of folks, right? Yeah. I mean, okay, if you miss this month, then how do we get back on track? Or sometimes people, you know, they save the emergency fund and then they 
feel devastated that they had to use it. No, no, no. That's why it's there. The emergency fund money was there so that when the car broke down, you could afford and it wasn't going to, you know, totally throw everything off. And then you work to build it back up again. I'm so glad that you're sharing this. It reminds me of actually a very recent experience. My wife and I went to meet with our financial planner in part because, well, to be honest, I was having some struggle in my business and was overextended and like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, how do I get back online? And I was kind of in such a fluster that I couldn't see things clearly. And my financial planner looked me straight in the eye and said, you can stop contributing to your retirement account for three to six months and you're going to be fine. And at first I was like, no, no, I cannot do that. I will not. (laughs) That breaks the rule. Like, because I had this rigid rule that you always save for retirement. You never stop. And especially once you get going. And so as like, I was stuck on that rule and him reminding me that like, okay, we have this bigger financial plan. You've seen your financial projections, you know where it's headed and you're in a, a stage of business growth where you are trying to balance that spending and income and it, it got out of line for you. So there was the shame too, that like, here, I'm this yes. business guy, I'm the money guy. How can I possibly have done this? And now I've done it and yep. I'm realizing and I'm spun out in shame. And so what I'm hearing from you is like, you provide that for your clients too. And that's a value of working with a financial planner is it's not just having the investment plan or the tax strategy or the cash flow. It's about having a conversation with someone, especially when you get spun out. Now, I'm curious because when we met, you mentioned, I think that your father was in the field. And so that's correct. Can you take us on your journey from initial understandings of what it meant to be a financial professional to where you're at now? Like take us on how you got there. It's been a total 180, or what's what's more severe than a 180? I'm not sure. But um, we need a different metaphor yeah, so than what, a 180 what, metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Growing up, my father was a financial advisor. I mean, he's been doing this stuff longer than I've been on the uh-huh. planet, and I grew up not wanting to do what he did. Period. Okay. No interest yeah. at all. And you know, I went out and got a college degree. I got a master's degree, and then I went out in the real world, and I started to say, oh, you know, that stuff that he talks about kind of applies. I kind of see that. And then my husband and I had been living in Washington, D.C., and we started to think, hey, you know, maybe someday we want to have kids. And if we do, it might be really convenient to be near the grandparents who all live in the suburbs of Philadelphia where we grew up because, you know, babysitters and all that. (laughs) Absolutely. Family support structure, big deal. Right. Uh Uh-huh. So we had that thought, and then it feels like the next day my husband got a job offer in Philadelphia. (laughs) I was like, okay, the universe is telling us it's time to move home. And I was like, all right, well, what the heck am I going to do? I was kind of in, you know, international trade type stuff in Washington. Uh-huh. That There wasn't a lot of that in Philadelphia at the time. I was like, well, maybe I could work with my dad. So I come up with this whole proposal and I like, you know, wrote out like a business plan for how I could contribute. And it was one of those, you had me at hello, right? He was like, one of my kids is interested in the business. <laughs> like that's all he had to hear. And he was super excited. But I have to say it was a struggle at the beginning because my father is a born salesperson. He is just naturally gifted uh, at, and, and he came up in a time in the industry where that, that was the role, right? You, in order to make any money or to get anything done, you were selling things to right. people. And he also, you know, he has an MBA from Wharton. I don't have either of those things. The sales gene skipped me completely, went to my <laughs> brother, and I don't have an MBA from uh-huh. Wharton. 
So I was like, well, shoot, I can't do this work, right? That was my conclusion because he was my only role model in the right. industry. Okay. Yeah. And I went to a chamber of commerce meeting. This was like 1998. Uh -huh. And I sat next to some guy who called himself a coach. Okay. I was like, what? What do you mean? You that coach volleyball? Like, what are you talking about? And he said, he was trying to explain what it was. He said, just do a free session with me and you'll okay. see. And by the end of the 30 minutes, I was basically crying. I'm like, I have to work with you. Help me, help me, help me. Because I was like, well, joining a family business is a life sentence, right? There's no way out. And I can't do this work. So what the heck am I going to do? So I worked with this guy for a couple of years. Uh -huh. And we, we spent a lot of time, and, and you've talked about how these things, they are a journey, right? They're not a, a Not a two-week or not even a 90-day uh -uh. to flat abs yep. kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we kind of circled around, like, what are all the things I could do, and, and what do I enjoy about this work? And there were a, a list of things I really do enjoy about talking to people about their money, right? Fortunately for me, I didn't have to do sales from day one, right. right? This is one of my pet peeves with the industry is that a lot of the inroads to becoming a financial advisor are day one, you've got to call everybody you know and try to sell them something. Right. And a lot of people, especially women, are like, yeah, see you later. Not doing that, it. That's not yeah. for me. Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. I would have lasted 90 yeah. seconds. But fortunately, my father had a bunch of clients where we did the retirement uh -huh. plan, the 401k, 403b, other things. So I could do the client meetings, the enrollment meetings, the group meetings one-on-one. -on -one. So I could do kind of baby financial planning with people right. in many sessions without having to sell anything. Thank yes. goodness. So there was a lot about that work that I loved. Uh -huh. So I kind of decided, well, all right, there's there's a way I can do this work. And then I discovered, sorry, this is a long story. No, now. it's great. Um, I just discovered behavioral finance and George uh -huh. Kinder and that whole kind of putting the money part second and putting the people and what they're trying to achieve in their lives first. Right. That blew my mind. I'm sorry, that's life planning. And behavioral finance is the, is the science about how human beings are wired to be bad at money. <laughs> and that was like, oh my gosh. So to this day, when I speak to groups, I love sharing the, the research, the proven Nobel Prize winning research showing that our brains make us bad with money. It's not a character flaw. It's not you. Let's stop beating ourselves up. Let's put the shame and blame behind and, and move forward. So those things all kind of combine to be like, huh, you know what? I think, I think there's a place for me. Wow. Man, I, you know, I, I, if my financial planner is listening, I'm sorry. But I'm thinking, man, maybe I need to switch and work with Stephanie. I don't know. <laughs> this is uh, very exciting. So, and I share that to say, like, when people are listening you may not know all the words that Stephanie just shared, but these are the forefront of where financial planning is going. And people like Stephanie that are engaged in behavioral finance and studying the science and the anatomy of the brain and being able to use that to communicate with their clients about how they actually show up around their money and why they hit the road bumps that they do is a huge gift, a huge, huge gift. I know that that's reduced my experience of shame so much as I've understood neuroscience and brain anatomy and, and the biases that our brains are wired towards. Imagine you've heard of the negativity bias. Yes. Can you explain that? And maybe another behavioral finance concept that you love sharing with clients that you find like, I love sharing this one because this is the one that helps so many of my clients. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the negativity bias, right, is that that we remember the negative things more than the positive. Yeah. And also, there's a piece that the negative stuff, like the downs in our investment account, right, they hurt more 
then the good things feel good, right? Like on a scale of, of intensity, uh -huh. the negatives are more powerful and painful than the ups are positive. Right. So that can lead to a lot of things, right? Including, um, there's been a lot of research showing that when a person starts to be an investor and the experiences they have early on shape their feelings about investing forever. So imagine someone, you know, getting out into the working world, getting a 401k plan around, say, 2006 or seven, and then in 2008, the market plummets and they feel like, you know, their account went to next to nothing. It didn't. Right. It only went down maybe 45%. Only. Right. Right. But still, right, that was the feeling. And then they have that utter fear that it's going to happen again, right? Like that is really lodged right. in their brains and it, and it can affect their behavior for a long time. I think that's really important. And I would even invite the listeners now is to stop and just hit pause even on this recording for a minute and think about when did you start investing? If you've started investing, that's assuming you have. And what did you see in that first, even three months, six months and a year in your portfolio? Is that still shaping your expectation about what investing is like? And even if you logically know that the market re has returned positive over any 10-year rolling period history, I think that's right. Almost, yeah. Well, there's almost any 10-year rolling period of history, the market has been up. So if you're a long-term investor, you're fine, is the bottom line story, right? But if you had that yep. emotional experience where I put in this chunk of money and it went down in the beginning... We need to work on that story and that message so that you can feel confident and enjoy the market. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I think so. I mean, I always remember years ago when I was working on a retirement plan, there was one participant who was very unhappy with his performance. Uh -huh. And he, he wanted to meet okay. me. And luckily, through the, the retirement plan provider, I could log on and see what was going on with his yeah. account. And what would happen is that he, you know, his paycheck would come in on a Friday. Uh -huh. And the money would go into the 401k. And then on, say, Tuesday, he'd log on and look. And if the m market was down over those two days, he would sell and get out and go to cash. Oh. And he did that again and again and again. So that when you looked over, say, the course of a year, right, he would buy in. It would go down a little bit. He'd sell. Buy in two weeks later. It would go down a little bit. Sell. So he showed quite a bit of negative performance. The market itself was fine. It was bouncing around, some down, some up. But his personal experience, right, right, was negative because of that behavioral bias, right? That fear, that recency bias, right? Mm. Like, oh my gosh, it's down. It's only going to keep going down. Yes. But that's not, that's not often what happens. And it can shoot us in the foot. And that's, I think you're pointing out about the, sh the shame and the guilt, right? That's a big piece of it. And that's a big piece of what gets in our way and realizing that like, oh, it's actually biology and, and brain chemistry. It's not yeah. a character flaw. That, and I think that that's got to be a core message is it's not a character flaw. Like, I think that's the first thing that we're likely to assign to ourselves or our partner is there's something wrong with our character. There's something inherently bad yeah. or not good. But it's when we recognize that it's neutral. We didn't choose how our brains became wired. That's evolution. No choice yep. there. And we're not changing that. Talk about growth and transformation is a long arc. Evolution is a really long arc. We're not right. going to change the fact that we have a negativity bias in our brain. And what I really right. like and appreciate about what you just shared, Stephanie, is you took the time to understand this person in their context and what they're doing specifically. 
Mm-hmm. And then I'm imagining you didn't go and say, well, Bob, you're being an idiot. Stop. You know, <laughs> and that would be really harsh. And, you know, some I don't think most professionals would say it quite that harsh, but they might feel or think that. But it sounds like there was really right. compassion. And from that place of compassion, you could probably talk with him and say, Bob, I see that on Friday your paycheck goes in. And then when the market goes down, you sell. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about your investment strategy and how you might see it differently. And did that, I'm making his name Bob. So did that, did it help Bob actually start to enjoy his 401k? That's a good question. I'm not sure I remember the outcome of, (laughs) of that story. I mean, I, I, I was a baby financial planner at the time, so I I might not have, I hopefully, hopefully I was compassionate, but I think even just, sometimes it's even just reminding people like, remember you're 34 and you're going to use this money when you're 65, right? What happens over the course of three days is such a small slice of that piece. Like let's zoom out the focus. And I do try to encourage people like, don't look like right now the markets are not looking good. I'm like, don't open your statement. Don't log on. Just, you know, if it's long-term money, just keep going. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the healthy love and money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. You asked me to share another behavioral finance concept, and I really want to take you up on that. Okay, great. So there's there's one called mental accounting, uh-huh. which I really love. Great. And this is the idea that even though we know a dollar is a dollar is a dollar is a dollar, and wherever that dollar comes from, it'll buy us the same cup of coffee at McDonald's, uh-huh. right? They're all the same, but we don't treat them that way in our minds. If I go to the closet, you know, at the end of the fall and I pull out my winter coat and I find a $20 bill in the pocket, <laughs> which I wouldn't anymore because nobody carries cash. But anyway, in right. the old days, right, I'd be like, ooh, fun, found money, I can treat myself. Absolutely. As opposed to pulling $20 out of my account. There was a research study at a university where they gave students $25 uh-huh. and half the students, they said, this is a refund of your tuition. Yeah. And the other half, they said, this is a bonus for participating in the study. And then they tracked what they did with it. And the students acted very differently, right? If it was a refund of the tuition, this was my parents' hard-earned money, or this was my loan proceeds. Like, I need to conserve this and be very careful with it. This is a bonus from us to you. Woohoo! right? Go out and party, buy a couple beers, or, (laughs) you know, go out to a movie. So what I like to do is take advantage of that. Let's use that to our advantage. And instead of having, say, one savings account or one bank account, I don't know about your listeners, but I'm very guilty of logging on, seeing my checking account balances a little bit higher and thinking, oh, I can go to the store and buy that awesome pair of shoes that's on sale. Absolutely. Right? Even though... If you even bother to log in. Right. Well, yeah. No, but for me, like if I see it, (laughs) I'm like, oh, wow. And I forget that the mortgage is coming out tomorrow and then that the credit card bill is due and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So mental accounting to me takes the form of having multiple savings accounts. And one is labeled tuition, uh, and one is labeled taxes, and one is labeled vacation, or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. And then, you know, the money goes in kind of automatically from different things. And then 
it helps that my balance isn't as high in my checking account, but also, oh, do I have money? I've got money. Oh, but that's vacation money. I don't want to use that for a pair of shoes because that's for vacation. Right. Or, you know, that's the tuition money. I'm not going to use that if I need the plumber because I got to pay that tuition bill. Yeah. Like use that mental accounting to our advantage. So that, that's interesting. And kind of bringing it full circle to what you're talking about earlier is you gave a great example of mental accounting and where we got to be flexible, right? So we all have a personal relationship with money and we all give multiple meanings to money, right? Yeah. And so this money is for this mean is a meaning. This money is for vacation yeah. is giving it meaning. Otherwise, yeah. it's just a dollar or $20 or $10,000. And it, yeah, it can go for vacation, a car, tuition, whatever. That's what's so beautiful about money is we use it as an exchange for literally everything. Yeah, that's true. But you were talking about the emergency fund and how like that's mental accounting, good financial practices. Yeah. But then it's like, wait, can I recognize that the fact that my car needs a new transmission or my house needs $2,000 in plumbing as a emergency and the money gets to come out for the purpose or it's like, Oh, that's so I think when we're working on mental accounting and setting this up, we also have to work with ourselves around what constitutes an emergency. Yeah. And being able to articulate that for yourself may be really helpful or reflecting on like, Oh, can this be seen as an emergency? Right. So that that mental accounting really is working for you. No, I think that's a really good point. And where else I see it come in is when people inherit money. So they've got some money that came from dad and dad worked so hard and he brought himself up from nothing. And, you know, and, and there's a great feeling of responsibility I see with my clients who've inherited money, almost to the point of, you know, a fear of spending Uh it or, you know, so often it's a talking through of, of getting at the meaning, like what does this mean to you and, and how would it feel most responsible for you to use it? And sometimes it's, save it for emergency, right? If I need it down the road, so I'm not destitute. Sometimes it's take the family on a big trip. Sometimes it's start a scholarship fund. I mean, depending on how much they've inherited, right? But like, you know, thinking that through. Is a huge, I've got a client I'm working with right now where there's a lot of that loyalty to the Mm father-in-law about he left the money and this was the purpose for the money. And and they actually need to use the money differently mm. for their goals. There's, there's still, if it's a Venn diagram, the, I would think the goals are still close or overlapping with what father-in-law had intended. But it's yep. having these conversations and working through it. And it's kind of, in some sense, how you hold the this. And so this raises another huge question, Stephanie. And I, I know most families, in my impression, are really struggling to talk about the estate plan and the money transfer. Yeah. and what the money means and how it's supposed to be used and how to have those conversations and thinking about the mental accounting and like the burden that inheritance is unintentionally create. What are some guidelines or suggestions for families that are in that estate planning process and talking about the wealth transfer and what's going to happen? How, how can families do that better? Oh, gosh. You know, I wish I had a good answer on that one because it is a it is a big one. And I've seen it happen, you know, on both ends, um, you know, those who are leaving the right. money and then those who are receiving. And everyone says, oh, my family won't get terrible about money, right? No one's going to fight. My kids will be fine. There won't be any trauma. And there's often yeah. drama. And I think 
you know, and generationally, yeah. right? There's different kind of tendencies to want to talk openly about money or not. Right. I, I, again, I don't have answers, and I think there are experts in that field, and you and I should both go find one to have on our podcast. Yes. But um, my solution, you know, is is just to try to have the conversations as much as you can. I mean, I'm thinking of one couple I'm working with now, and and mother-in-law won't. She's not going to talk about it. Like, she's not even going to tell them where the will is. So that that, that could that's going to get sticky. Well, <laughs> right. And so, you know, some of those fears, I mean, in the extreme form, is like, well, if my kids know what they're getting, then they're going to off me. Right? Oh, right? my gosh. Have you heard that one? No. But then they won't be responsible, and, and they'll quit working now, and they won't save anything if they know what they're getting. I've heard, I've heard that one. Okay. Yeah. What else have I heard? What else have we heard? It's like, well, I don't want to deal with the sibling conflict, so I'm just not going to address it. Mm -hmm. They already know that the kids are going to be upset with each other about the arrangement, (laughs) so they don't want to deal with it. Right. Yep. It'll be their problem when I'm gone. Yeah. It's their problem and it won't matter because I'm gone. And it's like, that passes down money trauma. That's big Mm -hmm. money trauma. And it's, Right. In, from my perspective as a family therapist, I think the ideal scenario is parents being able to convey this is our intention. This is what we would hope would happen with the money. And we love you and trust you as mature enough adults to be flexible with what you're doing and know that we wouldn't be hurt by that. Now, that I think yeah. that would reflect a high degree of money maturity. You, now, you mentioned George Kinder and the, the life planning. So you've presumably read The Seven Stages of Money Maturity. I have, and I've taken some training with them. So I'm gonna, we're right there now. What's money maturity mean to you? And how do people go on that journey of gaining money maturity? Oh, it is a journey, right? I'm, I'm not sure. It's kind of like... Nirvana. I'm not sure anyone ever actually gets there except for George himself in Aloha. Um, (laughs) George, she's referring to George Kinder. You can look up, uh, what is it? The Kinder Institute, I think K-I-N-D-E-R. We'll do some show notes or something so people can find it if they want. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of the revolutionary guy who said, you know, hey, financial planners, it's not just all about the spreadsheets. (laughs) You know, let's talk about the the whole person and, and, and all that kind of stuff. He's got his great famous three questions, which you know, kind of really try to get at what is most important right. to you. And, oh, yeah, the money should be supporting that. Right. I mean, I think, you know, back to kind of your orientation, Ed, and, and, and relationships, right? One part of money maturity is being able to, and I'm not saying I've gotten there, <laughs> but being able to have good conversations about money and not just the numbers, right? The The... The emotions, the meaning, our own hang-ups, yeah. you know, what, what we attach to it. Expectations. And it's hard. And I think, yeah, absolutely, expectations. And again, because I think the cultural message is, as I think you pointed out, that the, the cultural uh, schema around money is competition, right? More is yes. better. And, and, and it's not necessarily that, oh, this is a meaningful emotional topic that we should talk about so there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers to getting to money maturity how's that for a non-answer it's a great non-answer answer <laughs> but it, it there are a lot of barriers and i think that that's one of them is in my own journey of trying to pursue money maturity there's an intellectual piece there's an yeah. emotional piece there's a relational yeah. piece 
there's kind of a moral ethical piece that's even different than mm. intellectual, right? And so mm-hmm. I think really kind of the, the message is it's about questioning and recognizing it's out there. And there's there are great books out there. Like I have actually, I think it's The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. Have you read that one? Yeah. Yep. That's a great one. That's kind of a classic. Um, is there a book that you're seeing on your bookshelf that you're thinking of that you like? Yeah, no, I'm trying to remember. I think it's The, the Art of oh, Money. Oh, with Barry Tesler. Absolutely. She mm-hmm. does great work. So there's this field of people now that are talking much more about it. So you don't have to figure all this out on your own. And the beautiful Correct. thing is each of the authors, Stephanie and I, we're all contributing to your own journey of making meaning with money, but it's your journey to take. We cannot take your journey for you. So you have to be asking these questions for yourself. We cannot give you the final answers. There is no final answer in my book. I'm not your professor. Um, Yeah. But it's that pursuit. It's a worthy pursuit. Um, So we're getting very philosophical here, uh, but I think it's worth it. I think we don't get philosophical sometimes quite enough and we need to. I agree. And, and, you know, being more reflective about it and it's going to teach you not just about your money. It's going to teach you about so many parts of yourself. Mm. Like in the sense of like how you're a husband, how you're a wife, how you're a father, how you're a mother. For sure on the relationship side. Right. But I think also, you know, one of the things I suggest people look at is their own patterns uh-huh. around okay. money, right? When do I tend to feel more anxious? When do I tend to splurge or, you know, uh, overspend what I had intended to spend, yeah. right? Like mine was when the kids were younger and it was the end of the day and we went to, so I'm in the Philadelphia area. We have this great convenience store called Wawa. If you know, you know. It's <laughs> okay. fabulous. I'm going to have to look that up when I'm in the Philly area. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'd go to Wawa for like, you know, two things Uh and I'm like, well, shoot, I deserve about three peppermint patties and Uh, a pint of ice uh, cream. And, you know, I got to get in that I deserve mode. And then we've spent 50 bucks at Wawa instead instead of eight. (laughs) Right. And, and that was not bad. That was one of my coping mechanisms, but that awareness, right. Of the pattern and, and okay, what is this? What am I trying to soothe or solve with this pattern, right? I think one of the keys is to step back from self-judgment, right? Right. If, if we're going to go down this path of exploring our own patterns and our own money, you know, situation, there's so many voices that we've picked up along the way that are going to be, you know, wagging their, you know, figurative fingers at us and saying, I can't believe you think that way. How dare you do this? We gotta, we gotta take more of a scientific approach, yes. right? Like, let's just look and see what we can discover, and you know, take it as data and information, as opposed to and notice the emotions that come up and the and the tendency to judge. Yeah. But try, try, try to give yourself some grace and step back from that self judgment. That it's and it's an ongoing process, right? Is that. In therapy world, there's a, a model of therapy called internal family systems. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this one. I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Uh, Richard Schwartz is the the developer of this, but he, psychology has long understood that we have different parts to ourselves so, or a way of languaging, right? The id, the ego, the superego is the Freudian kind of way of saying things. Mm-hmm. So I think many would argue we have an internal critic, right? Oh, yeah. And 
that that internal critic is an amalgam of many different people that have been critical of something that we've done directly or we're aware of in society that other people are critical about. So we, we try to steer clear of that, right? Yeah. And so the, the inner critic in one way serves a great purpose because it, it wants to keep us in line and doing the right thing. But the inner critic can get pretty harsh and punitive as well. And that's when it becomes problematic for us because we, we're sliding into shame and avoidance and minimizing. And so being able to work with that as we're exploring ourselves is so, so very powerful. And I, I love the Wawa story, and especially because what you brought up, and I, I've been thinking about this myself, is that I deserve. And yeah. man, I'll tell you what, because I'm in that parenting stage with three young boys, 11, six, and four and a half. Oh, wow. And they rightly have a lot of needs. And they're looking yeah. to me to meet, and my wife, to meet a good bit of them. And I know a lot of people listening, if you're parents to young kids or you've been there, you know how exhausting it is. I mean, I thought I knew what it, I knew, I thought I knew what it meant to be exhausted in my 20s. No idea. Yeah. And I think the more we feel exhausted, the, the stronger we're going to have that I deserve reaction and that yeah. entitlement. And because we do deserve to take care of ourselves and we do deserve to have space and to have nice things. And so Wawa probably wasn't budget busting and the end of the world for the family, right? But we can, that I deserve can take us down a slippery, slippery slope of excessive yes. spending and splurging or excessive trips beyond what we can truly afford at this, our current level of income. And so becoming aware of and non-judgmental about, am I having a strong I deserve response right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if so, are there non-monetary ways of getting that yes. mat. You, you look, you're ready to pick right up on that. So go ahead. I am back to the, you know, having different options and different ways of getting there. Right. If we can, can have that realization and that self-reflection to realize like I'm in need of a little, you know, alone time and self-care right yeah. now. And the peppermint patties aren't necessarily the only way to do it. And like you said, that's not going to break the bank, but maybe I'm not telling you about the ones. That did <laughs> no, um, that's for, you know, fi- financial therapy, <laughs> not for public display. Yeah. And I will just say this, not to sidetrack too far, but that is also part of this challenge is we have our own private experiences that we do hold close to the vest and we all have them, right? And you've alluded, you have some of those things that are not public information and rightly so. And I have mine and and everyone does. So you're not, no one's alone in having those things that they would rather nobody else know about. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But one of the concepts that I've adopted, which um, I find really helpful in client conversations too, I've, I've borrowed from Danielle Laporte. She talks about core desired feelings. So, you know, if it's, if it's splurging with the I deserve reaction, or sometimes I'll find someone who is really set on wanting to buy a beach house, right? Like, and now I'm talking bigger picture yeah. goals. Like, I really, but I, I need to get this beach house. And sometimes, you know, maybe that fits in the financial picture. Maybe it doesn't. But I always try to ask, like, why? Like, what is the underlying goal? Uh, what is what is the way you want to feel that's leading you to want to have the beach house? Yeah. Oh, you know, I want to have amazing experiences and memories with my grandkids. Oh, okay. I want to feel at peace and connected to the water. Okay. All right. We can work with that, right? I mean, uh, a beach house that might get swept away by a hurricane is a whole different <laughs> thing. But we can work with what the whole... Right, the actual desired feelings uh, are, and there's different ways to get there. 
That's so powerful. And it really speaks to a place that I'm stuck right now in my own journey, right? Is lake house. Ah. Right? I want to have a lake house. And for some of those core desired emotional states that you're talking about. And it's, yeah. as I was hearing you, and I was thinking about like, how else can I meet those? Yeah. Because there are alternatives kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier is there's always alternatives to getting our needs met, but we yes. can get locked on like, this is the way I get my needs met. I have to have it this way. And if we're, right. if you notice that you're in that state of rigidity and have to, that's a good sign that you probably need some help because again, there's nothing wrong with wanting a lake house or a beach house or anything. But if we are stuck rigidly in our mind about getting it, there's something else going on. Yeah. And I think the help, you know, obviously, Ed and I believe that professional help is, is great, but sometimes it's, it's a, a valued friend that you can truly be open and yeah. not feel judged yeah. with. I often recommend people find a money buddy. Right, someone you can share all the money stuff with, right? The goals, the numbers, but also the feelings and the hangups and the worries and the, you know, self yeah. um, sabotaging patterns that might come up somewhere where you can be open and feel safe to talk about it because the talking can give you that perspective and that sometimes those aha moments to to perhaps change the pattern. The, the talking is where the change happens. That right we talk about i need time to process something and i can't explain all the neuroscience behind how talking through something changes our mind or helps re-regulate it but there is a lot of neuroscience that supports mm. how talking through something whether with a therapist a planner your journal or a close friend or family member they're all activating many of the same neurostructures to help you organize and get clarity because None of us can see ourselves perfectly clearly. Our mirrors are always warped or convexed or concave to some degree. No mm. matter how much we like to think that our mirror that, that we look and see ourselves is uh, perfectly flush. <laughs> uh, Stephanie, this has been an incredible interview. And I'm so glad that we just got to continue from your interview of me over to mine. I think it's really been wonderful. So. I'll make sure to have a link to your podcast interview so people can hear that first part of it. And uh, I'll do the same. That's going to be great. And so if people wanted to work with you, connect with you, how would they go about doing that? So my company is called Sophia Financial. That's Sophia with an F, S-O-F-I-A Financial. Uh -huh. um, so there's website. I'm on various social medias. Um, got some videos up on YouTube. So should be able to find me that way. What's your favorite social channel to, to interact on? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm still a Facebooker. I'm, I'm Gen X. You know, I'm, that, that's kind of where my people are. And yeah. I have the most interaction there, I have to say. Well, <laughs> my kids laugh at me. You heard it here. Stephanie is a Gen Xer. And go ahead and find her on Facebook. There's no shame in that game. There's a social platform <laughs> for all of us. So... Yep. Awesome. Stephanie, thank you for your generosity of spirit and time. And this has truly been an enriching conversation for me. And I trust for the people that hear it, they will find it so as well. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, 
It will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at 